This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening, this is Inside Story with Lee Chui Lin and Sharad Kutin. Tonight, a look into the offset remark that Sabah and Sarawak are the models of unity and diversity in Malaysia. We want to explore how much of this is true and also how broad comments like this can disguise issues that need to be discussed. And we'll be doing that with anthropologist Dr. Vilashini Sumaya. Let us know, do you think Sabah and Sarawak have something unique that we don't have here in Malaya when it comes to diversity? That number to call 7733-2900, tweet us at BFM Radio and send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899. This is Inside Story. It is 6.08. So, um, I mean, it's actually said very often, um, this comment that Sabah and Sarawak have a, a kind of diversity and openness that we simply don't have here on the peninsula. But the remark today actually specifically came from Sabah's Chief Minister, Datuk Sri Hajiji No, who said that unity and harmony among Sabahans are the keys behind the prosperity and well-being of the state, saying that the unique ethnic diversity of Sabah are uh, the foundations for mutual respect and understanding among Sabahans and that other states in Malaysia ought to look to it as an example for multiracial and multicultural unity. Yeah, and you know, we see that actually... <clears throat> Sorry, it's so often when uh, politicians push, push back on federal policies, politicians uh, from the territories of Sabah and Sarawak, um, even in that recent, uh, you know, call by the federal government to have correspondence, official correspondence only in the Malay language. And what is interesting when you listen to the Sabah, sorry, Sarawakian politicians, they, they said we embrace the uh, linguistic diversity of the state, right? And so, you know, and it was no, uh, I think, attack on the national language, but it was a recognition that in, that you could do both. You could both respect the national language and also uh, want to communicate in, in the most effective way with a range of people whose use of the of all kinds of languages makes it necessary. So I, I think that's a kind of knowledge is there is that there's a premium, I think, placed in, in the territories of Sabah Sarawak on being practical, it seems to me. I mean, these are the kind of positives I think you get from listening to politicians from those two territories. So the thing that we're trying to explore today, right, um, because it is the is what might end up being hidden by that. Um, firstly, I think just to celebrate what is true, because we do often hear people say, oh, I'm from Sabah or Sarawak, and this is absolutely true. The first time I came to the peninsula, I was shocked by how you people treated each other and us. And, you know, it, it's a whole thing. You hear that very often. Um, but I think similarly, there is also that sense of when you're held up as a model of something, uh, it does mean that a diversity of experience doesn't actually get to be expressed. So, for example, if you are somebody who lives in the territory of Sabah and Sarawak and you say, well, actually, I don't think that's true, um, you might end up getting silenced by the just by virtue of the giant wave of everybody going, no, of course not. 
everybody is very diverse. What are you talking about? I don't want to hear your experience. And so I think that's kind of what we're trying to get at today, that sometimes um, saying things in broad positive strokes, while some of it is true, maybe, you know, huge amounts of it are true, um, nevertheless can disguise very real issues within these places that have specificity to them that need to be discussed. Yeah, so you're absolutely right, because at least when you look at, say, a a state like uh, Sabah, we do know that the politics of ethnicity does operate there. There is the whole uh, KDM issue, right? The community, the Karazan Dusun Murut community, it sees itself separate. And then there's the Suluk community. And that played it out in the in the state level politics. And I think Villa will, knows much better than I do about those kinds of divisions. There's also this whole exclusion of the so-called stateless who are in very much, actually, they're not from some far off distant land. They're really part of the the ecosystem of that part of the world, the Sulu world, right? So what happens when they get excluded? You're right, when you kind of talk yourself up too much, you might not want to deal with the the darker side or the downsides of some of the things that are happening. Not just you, other people. The people that you're talking yourself up to also don't want to hear it. And then what happens? Um, so that's what we're talking about today. And we are going to be joined very shortly by our guest, anthropologist Dr. Vilashni Somia. But let us know, do you think, uh, whether you are in fact Sabahan Sarawakian or you visited or whatever it may be, do you think that Sabah and Sarawak... Do, have something unique that we don't hear in Malaya when it comes to diversity. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Bombing frustrated minds. BFM eighty nine point nine. It is 6.14 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. And we're talking today about the uh, notion, the, the common idea that Sabah and Sarawak are the models of unity and diversity in our country. One that was recently reinforced by Sabah's Chief Minister, Datuk Sri Hajiji Noor, who said that, yes, in fact, other states should be looking to Sabah as an example for multiracial and multicultural unity. And that's what we're asking you today. Do you think Sabah and Sarawak have something unique that we don't hear in Malaya when it comes to that point about diversity? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now on the show, we have anthropologist Dr. Vilashni Somia. Villa, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So in light of Hajijino's statements, um, could you tell us what prompts politicians from Sabah and Sarawak as well to speak of their territories as examples of racial unity for other states? Is this new? How prevalent is this impulse? Well, it's not new. I mean, obviously, for it to be sort of used in political messaging, it has to come from somewhere real. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a product of uh, biracial, biraciality. And, um, you know, certainly when I was growing up, there were many people who were also multiracial, biracial when I was growing up in the state of Sabah, um, simply because it it was expected, you know, people married uh, other ethnic groups, they married outside of their, you know, their immediate, um, you know, uh, sort of ethnic grouping. Um, And I think on top of that, that sort of very rigid boundaries for, you know, marking of of, uh, all sorts of um, religious or ethnic territories are quite blurred in a place like Sabah and even Sarawak, right? And so there's there's a very strong understanding of coexistence that exists. So I can see how it becomes a very 
um, you know, very uh, powerful message that um, I think politicians and statesmen continue to return to, uh, simply because, you know, this idea of racial unity is a very appealing one, especially to governance. Yeah, so you talked about uh, politicians, right? So um, the question is whether and what ways that these platitudes about unity or about being laid back reflect the true experience of individuals and communities in Sabah on the ground and what ways it's both true but maybe also exaggerated? Mm, yeah, I, I mean, that's a really good question because I, I think the key word here is exaggeration. Um, um, and that's not to sort of take away from that kind of, um, you know, really... Uh, easygoing, as as I think a lot of Malayans when they go to Sabah and Sarawak, they're like, hey, things are really easygoing here. Things are really are really laid back in these parts of Sabah and Sarawak. You know, I go into a supermarket. I remember somebody telling me I've gone into a supermarket and there are no um, uh, what you call boundaries between um, um, other goods sold and say the the refrigerator that's uh, selling beer for example and i think it's because there is a very um sort of there's a common understanding amongst people that i've grown up with particularly uh that you know um you need to know what your lane is you need to understand who you are nobody's going to try to take you out of your lane or try to push you out and as long as you stick to it you know it makes sense and i think that that sort of um worldview is very commonly found by um uh, many sabahans and sarawakians that live uh, in that part of the world. I mean, clearly the world is very different when we come to the peninsula. Uh, but the issue with exaggeration is that, um, and I think this is where it can be very dangerous, is that um, an exaggeration of that kind of uh, extreme laid-backness, extreme uh, sense of uh, unity means that we're not, um, it's as if we're not paying attention to other um, important is issues that are happening in a place like Sabah, Right. I think it can be very dangerous if um, we sort of limit and we sort of, uh, how do I say, simplify the way in which people are experiencing unity. Because it seems to be, I think, especially, if, you know, for years, from years of living in Kuala Lumpur, uh, there is a great thirst and hunger for that kind of unity that you find uh, or racial unity, uh, unity that you find in a place like Sabah. Um, simply because I think there's that constant reminder that it doesn't exist here. Ah, so if we build on that, right, um, as someone who is Sabahan but who lives and works here, talk to us about, I guess, some of the more specific differences you've noticed between how Sabah and Sarawak and Peninsula Malaya think about race and inclusivity and, and I think how that bears out in the ways people relate to each other. You know, um, growing up, and I still see this from time again, thanks for asking that, Lynn, um, is that every time we head towards either Merdeka or, well, now Malaysia Day, clearly we've, we've made a big show of celebrating Malaysia Day, uh, is that, you know, um, we're, all, we're all different, but we're the same, with an emphasis on different. And I think this is where um, uh, that idea of, hey, I'm different, so you need to still recognize my sensitivities and I will try to recognize yours. It comes from this, I think, you know, and if you sort of push that kind of um, maybe saccharine positive uh, message, uh, it becomes a very inorganic way of celebrating diversity. And um, what I can tell you is that, you know, I've, like I said, I, I'm married to a guy from uh, your parts of the woods, Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've lived here for many years because I work here. Is that it, it constantly is a focus on the difference rather than the similarities. 
Personally, I've always found that an offensive way of really talking about racial unity or any sort of unity, really. Because if we if we start off that uh, entire engagement and conversation by with that reminder, then everything else becomes inorganic. And I think this is where it goes back to how how that sort of branding of, you know, hey, Sabahansa are really cool and they're laid back and they're so united can be really toxic because it then becomes a very infantilized um, uh, point of looking of things. And, you know, I, and this is where I think it can be problematic. Uh, Villa, since you brought up your husband, let's talk about marriage. And because it is an important institution and often does shape the way societies work. So tell us about a little bit about interfaith or intercultural marriages that happen in Sabah and Sarawak and how inclusivity or respect of boundaries operates in family institutions in uh, in Sabah. Yeah, you know... Um um, I remember a while back, a bunch of students were trying to sort of, for a, an undergraduate pro, uh, project, um, talk about this issue of interfaith marriages. They're talking about racial unity in Malaysia and how it is that Malaysia is the bastion for it. And sure, you know, we've got the capacity to reach that. I'm not discounting that at all. Uh, but I think for many of the students who came from these parts of the world in uh, Peninsula Malaysia, it was always such a big thing when they would see, say, for example, celebrities, right, who would marry somebody from Sabah and they would attend, say, for example, Christmas or a funeral and how it was that the Sabahan family embraced this person who was, especially if if the, the spouse that the Sabahan had married is Malay, simply because, especially from where I've come from, the conversation is marrying, marrying a person who's Malay is not just a conversion into Islam, Right, but it could potentially be a conversion into being Malay as well. So you might lose everything that comes with being Dusun or Suluk or or Iban or Kedayan and so on and so forth. So I think in Sabah particularly, when you talk about interfaith marriages, the issue, the 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 key word here really is interfaith. Nobody's converting out of who they are, and nobody's you know you've met in the middle, and of course. Um, you know, respecting the fact that Malaysia is uh, Malaysia's official religion is Islam, and that if you do marry a Muslim person, you are expected to convert into Islam. That doesn't mean you lose everything that comes with being, say, for example, um, uh, Kadazan. And I think this is one of the things that if you lived in Sabah and you've converted into Islam and you've had an entire life where you celebrated Christmas, that should not disappear. It's just that the way in which you pray has changed, uh, but generally who you are as a person and who you represent as a community should never shift. So I think, you know, sort of coming here and sort of understanding this notion of family institutions, I think in in this parts of Malaysia is it, rooted in very, it's much more institutionalized language rather than uh, a place like East Malaysia. Can we just follow up on that? Because you seem to be suggesting there are some cultures where assimilation is expected. You're coming into my culture, you're marrying into my culture, and yet there's expectation that you become one of us, right? Uh, it, what is the opposite of assimilation? And how can that opposite model be a model for unity? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think many scholars uh, discuss that in within the Malaysian model itself. And I think the closest that I can come to that is this entire notion of coexistence, you know, peaceful coexistence and really inclusive coexistence, right? Um, of course, assimilation is to be expected on some level. You're going to have children. There has to be a conversation about, you know, maybe a much more dominant 
uh, culture that sort of takes over perhaps. And uh, this is nothing new, of course. But I think also sort of shaving off that idea that, you know, one your other parent uh, came from a, a, a background that's completely different and celebrates things differently, speaks an entirely different language, um, you know, should also be celebrated in that things. And, and, and those notions of existence have to start from places like schools, right? I mean, if schools gave uh, uh, extracurricular activities that allowed us to say, uh, for example, celebrate the vastly varied and different indigenous languages found in both Sabah and Sarawak, we'd have options for almost, say, anywhere between 80 to 100 um, indigenous languages, right? So I think in sort of paying attention to those things, we have to maybe, um, I wouldn't say change, but certainly align differently the way in which we are looking at intercultural uh, interactions. It can't just be for the sake of tokenism. It has to come from somewhere much more sincere. I, I want to ask um, a question that maybe has to do with when we tell stories um, about each other here, I, generally speaking, you do have people asking, and what was the person? This person that you're describing, what was that person? And it's usually, you know, a not so subtle attempt to try and understand how you relate to people, right? So like, are you talking about a Malay Chinese Indian person? What is this? And then that helps to kind of, for a lot of people, place the character in a story in a certain light. And I think that what is a person tends to be very narrow here for us, right? It's three broad races and then the much maligned Dan Lion Lion. And I'm wondering whether the context is different when you're talking about a place like Sabah and Sarawak, where the diversity of uh, culture, indigenous um Indigenous folks and otherwise, you know, is so much more broad than what we are talking about in the Malayan context. Yeah, I mean, you know, and this also is certainly because being Malayan, coming from Peninsular Malaysia, uh, sort of gives you the privilege of being the sort of dominantly uh, recognised groups of people, even if you were a minority here. Um, For example, if you were Indian of Tamil descent, for example, right? Um, while you are still uh, done like in line, you still have representation in terms of, you know, uh, um, uh, a poster in preparation for uh, Merdeka, for example, right? And and everything else has to be sort of picked in terms of what stands out to you visually. So you'll have uh, maybe one Iban uh, person and a Kadazan person, discounting the fact that, you know, that there's so many other uh, ethnic groups that, really need representation at this point. We haven't even gone into the conversation about orang asli people as well, right? So um, I think uh, when it comes to this, um, very important messaging from the government has to be, you know, reconsidered. Uh, There is a word that I really hate. I use this all the time. I mention this to my students time and time again. I hate this word. And yet it is a word that we still use today when we talk about Um, racial unity, and that word is tolerance. I can't imagine a time in which when you talked about, you know, your spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you say, I tolerate you, you know? And I just think it, it, it came from a point in history when it was important. It really needs to change at this point simply because this is this is where a framework can no longer be used. I think if you really want to achieve... Uh, racial unity, if there are frameworks outside of the Malayan structure that make sense, even at the, at, 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 even at the, uh, what do you call, even, even at the point in which 
we may also be sort of simplifying problems that are that exist in Sabah today. And I can go on and on about problems in Sabah, right? Is that there are frameworks that need to be updated. And using a framework such as the tolerance framework, for me personally, can be problematic when we do talk about these things. So if Sabah, for example, if if Dato Hajiji, for example, says, hey, let's look at examples of racial unity um, 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 in a place like Sabah and, you know, sort of scale it up for at a national level. I think this is one of the times that I wouldn't necessarily disagree with him. I think that's something that we can dig deeper and use. Uh, but paying uh, into consideration the sort of nuances that comes with it, the sort of challenges that comes with uh, what it means to be, you know, racially united. It doesn't mean that we're smiling all the time. It means that we can have very open, raw, honest conversations about differences and how you move forward with them. Villa, I should have asked you before you came on, but I'm going to ask you now. Can you stay with us after the news? Okay, great. So uh, that being the case, we will come back after this to continue our conversation with anthropologist Dr. Vilashini Somia. Um, We are talking today about this notion of racial unity and diversity in the state of Sabah or in the states of Sabah and Sarawak. We are asking you for your thoughts. Um, Do you think that Sabah and Sarawak do have something unique that we don't have here in Malaya when it comes to diversity? You can call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Banish fraudulent manoeuvres, BFM 89.9. It's 6.38 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We're talking today about Sabah and Sarawak always being held up as beacons of unity and diversity for Malaysia and how, well, some of that is true, it can also be a potentially damaging perspective to take, particularly for people who are living within those territories. Um, let us know what you think. You Do Sabah and Sarawak have something unique that we don't have here in Malaya when it comes to this issue of diversity? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp 018 Tweet us at BFM Radio. We're continuing our conversation now with our guest, uh, anthropologist Dr. Vilashni Somia. So, um, Villa, perhaps you could talk to us about what some of the broad issues of what are some of the fault lines that exist within Sabahan society that may not be so apparent um, to people who don't live there? Well, you know, um, going to the the core of this whole conversation is, and I'm going to bring in. Uh, our cousins from Sarawak, and I use the term cousin simply because many Malayans often confuse a Sabahan for a Sarawakian and vice versa. And, you know, believe you me, it's kind of annoying in 2024 when people can't tell the difference between the two uh, territories, right? Um, I bring them in simply because, um, you know, this obviously, first and foremost, if you can't tell the difference between the two, therein lies one of the, the, the issues. But um, also is that um, there is a lot of um, larger issues about um, elitism, for example, that happens in both these states, right? Uh, and the fact that uh, for both Sabah and Sarawak, there, there still is this sort of in like political infantilizing that takes place, I think, that take, that happens particularly in Malaya towards them, right? And what, what happens when you sort of politically, economically, maybe even socially infantilized territories like Sabah and Sarawak is that you you sort of limit them into being. And this is why, this is where, you know, calling calling or, or assuming both the states are so, you know, laid back and simple 
is that 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 language limits um, their potentiality for being seen as equal partners. Um, you know, it simplifies their participation in very very important things. Uh, and while uh, on many levels it is true that there is a, a very strong form of racial unity that that does exist in both these states, that also doesn't take away from the other major issues that both states are, you know, separately trying to deal with. And like I said, you know, uh, political elitism might, might sort of take place in that sense. The sort of massive problem with the rural-urban divide, the gap that happens between these, these areas, and the association with very different ethnic groups and indigenous uh, bodies that are, uh, you know, sort of placed within the sort of uh, geopolitics of these spaces. And also the kind of activism that's happening um, on a grassroots level by people in both Sabah and Sarawak. I speak with greater authority in Sabah simply because I'm from there and I, I study the Sabah territory particularly. But the kind of uh, grassroots activism by Sabahans in trying to really fix a lot of these social problems that exist, right? We can't just reduce the entire state of Sabah into being seen as a laid-back state or one that's just about racial unity. It is racial unity in spite of a lot of things that are happening, you know, in spite of a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, issues that had to be sacrificed uh, along the way simply because of the kind of uh, socio-political turbulences that are experienced by the people. Villa, uh, Lynn asked about fault lines. I want to ask about hierarchies, and I know you do a extensive work on migrants and non-citizens in Sabah. How did you fit them into this model or this cliche of unity? What do they do to that idea? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think this is, of course, I've, if we if if we could have a segment that ran for about five days, Sharad, I think <laughs> I might be able to cover it. But since we kind of have a couple of minutes only, let me try to sum this up. Um, I think on a political level, uh, Sabahans are constantly told that the non-citizens problem, that the migration problem that has existed in Sabah for at this point almost fifty years. Uh, is a problem for them because it's an issue of resources, right? And this is where this conversation of hierarchy exists. Indigenous native people of Sabah have so little already. They cannot possibly have any space to share this with non-citizens that have come in illicit, illicitly. Um, and I think if, you know, I've had the, the utter privilege of um, being able to research this space Simply and and you know from the many years that I've lived with um, very different communities in Sabah, I found that um, uh, in the micro, in the everyday of you know people who are living in Sabah, particularly, and I think you know if we leave Kota Kinabalu particularly and you know head towards semi-rural or semi-urban spaces, is that the the lines between the migrant body and the indigenous body is very blurred. Because I think when you are living in situations of remoteness uh, with great limitations to access to, uh, you know, infrastructure and resources in general, uh, education or just, you know, welfare and so on and so forth, uh, so forth um, you have to make each other, you each would have to make the other their allies. Um, and this is never truly represented in policies is never truly represented in, you know, working papers that are given towards the government, simply because I think it is very convenient um, to sort of work with these 
cleavages and these um, you know these structures that divide. It is it is incredibly politically convenient, and I think um, even if there has been intention in the last few years by you know some statesmen and politicians and maybe members of the civil service who quite sincerely want to bring change, right? Want to work on these segments of the this uh, the segment of this population. It is difficult because it will always return to you know us versus them narratives, and that's very difficult to fight especially in a place like Sabah, that still on top of that has to sort of battle all sorts of um, um, issues of representation politically against um, or with or, 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 or um, in relation to the peninsula. So I think, you know, it's layered. It's an incredibly layered issue that makes it almost, um, you know, there's a, there's a scholar, there's another scholar that's worked on this and they use the word impossible. They are impossible issues to solve simply because of the number of stakeholders that come in and nobody really pays attention to anybody on the ground and what they think. Villa, it's a it's a complicated topic. It's a complex one. I think that's very clear. Um, so I'm going to do, I think, what is probably not the right question, but it's one that I'll ask you anyway. Final message or final thought on this? Um, there is a great capacity to... Um, to use a framework of unity, to use a framework of inclusivity in a way that can bridge massive gaps, not just in Sabah and Sarawak, but also within the peninsula and throughout the three territories. There is a great capacity. It just has to be one where egos are put aside and compassion is made central. So I think if that can find its way into you know policymakers' um, hearts and minds as they move forward with this. I mean, we've got a new king, so you know, hopefully it, that might be sort of like an impetus to change things. But essentially, the most privileged that come to the table have to always bear in mind their privileges and you know take that position ultimately. So yeah, if there's a way to use it, of course there is, and um, I will remain hopeful. Villa, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much, guys. That was anthropologist Dr. Vilashni Somia joining us to talk about uh, essentially this notion that Sabah and Sarawak, uh, but Sabah in particular, are held up as, hey, this is how it should be when it comes to racial unity and diversity in the country. And the truth in that, but also the pitfalls behind it. Let us know what you think. You can call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9. It is 6.48 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. And we've been talking today about Sabah in being held up as the beacon of unity and diversity in our country and Sarawak to a degree. Um, and asking you for your thoughts because we heard from our guests and I think it was just a sense that we got also that generally... While this is true, no one's denying that there is truth to it, it can also perhaps paper over cracks that people might not want discussed. And so we're asking you for your thoughts. Do Sabah and Sarawak have something unique that we don't have here in Malaya when it comes to diversity? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Um, actually, we heard earlier from our guest about about 
governance or rather about the role that politicians and statesmen play in this. And that's something that we're getting here. Um, Edmund, for example, says the uniqueness is in how their politicians behave. Uh, They're more moderate. Uh, Peninsular politicians are preaching race and religion. Yeah, so Edmund, I, I agree. I think broadly, uh, us in the peninsula look at politicians over there in that in those ways. But I, I don't. I think if you look deeper into their politics, into read their media, uh, you'll actually see some of the things that we see here. Right? Uh, maybe not framed in quite the same way. So I think what uh, our guests earlier, Villa, uh, sort of. Uh, trying to get us to think about is, um, but what she didn't give us in some ways was the tools to do it, right? How do you, how do we get a better sense as Peninsula people, uh, maybe with limited experience of travel in, in those two territories, how do we get a better sense of the complexity of their societies and the dynamics where some of these things might be coded, right? Where you might find race and religion or division or what region you come from, urban or rural, actually impacting your life chances. Mm. Uh, we also have actually some really interesting thoughts coming through from uh, Fadzli and Alberto, both pointing to the role that religion plays in identity politics. Uh, Fadzli says, I think East Malaysians have their own prejudices towards West Malaysians that we're narrow-minded, bigots, extremists, and so on. On a lighter note, I found that they generally lack the biases common on the peninsula, which is nice and refreshing. They're definitely more open-minded in many issues that are more rigid uh, in Malaya, into ethnic and religious marriages and so on. But on the other hand, as a Muslim, I have noted the relative indifference towards religion among the East Malaysians I know, which I find troubling. I have a Sarawakian friend who keeps referring to Sarawak as his country, and it riles me up to no end. We used to jokingly fight about it. So that's Fatsli. Alberto, meanwhile, says, the main difference between the Malayan and Borneo mindsets is, in my opinion, the fact that religion is considered a personal individual issue and plays little role in identity politics. Proof of that being that pastors never won a seat in either Sarawak or Sabah and not for Lack of trying or wanting. Yeah, I mean, first of all, but I agree with you. The kind of religious pol- identity politics we have here doesn't exist there. But I, I would suspect that actually the Christian churches of the territories of Sabah and Sarawak play a huge role. Right. So, uh, Sarawak is a Christian majority uh, state, meaning the population uh, majority of the population is of Christian faith. Uh, they have churches over there. There's a whole range of churches, uh, different denominations with their own cultural uh, and ideological outlooks. Uh, some are very conservative and so on and so forth. I just have to admit, we're not familiar with it. And we look through everything. We think religion, but actually is a code for Islam. Then we'll never see, in fact, the, the many religions of the uh, Eastern territories and how they play a role in shaping politics and society there. But I think it's interesting, Fazli, that your message specifically points to the, the ways in which East Malaysians and West Malaysians refer to one another and think of one another and the trigger points. Because actually, this is something that we hear quite a lot and other messages are bringing it up too, that for a very long time, I think what we hear from our brethren in Sabah and Sarawak is the sense that um, Malayans think that we are more than, better than, that we have a superiority complex, that by virtue of, like our guest pointed out, by virtue of the fact that even in a minority context, we are still a majority, um, you know, we, we get to play that card. And so that's been something that's been coming through more as we hear more from East Malaysians um, over the months and years. And now, Fatsli, I think what you're pointing to is that from a West Malaysian point of view, if you don't feel that you occupy that space, it can be difficult to hear over and over again that people think you're bigoted. 
Yeah, bigoted, or they actually... Or just narrow-minded, yeah. You know, separate. I mean, I I spoke to a a very well-educated Sarawakian uh, in the the early 30s who told me that she doesn't go to the peninsula very much. I mean, uh, at at best, she's using it as a transit point to go to Australia. And that's really, (laughs) really... And and I think it it, it came... Her comment, because I'd asked her, how much of KL do you know? And her thing was she felt the need to express a certain level of disdain. I was quite surprised by it. Not offended, but I was surprised. Because I think as Sarawak gets richer, and it is getting richer for all kinds of reasons, as the both territories get more politically assertive, we will find that the kind of, uh, there's going to be a shift. And the kind of, you know, casual... Centering. Cent- yeah, you know, the way in which Malayans sometimes forget that actually Sabah and Sarawak are part of Malaysia and we say we are Malaysia and they get irritated that we say things like, that suggest that they're not part of Malaysia. It's going to come back uh, and haunt us because we're going to have to be on the receiving end of people who are now much more assertive, much more confident, and they're going to have the resources to assert that. Uh, we have a bunch of voice notes that have come in as well, um, including one from Vikram, which has, I think, is raising an interesting point. Um, here it is. Hey, hi. I'm driving at uh, North South Highway right now, and I'm hearing about the uh, your 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 discussion about the racial issue and uh, how how uh, Sabah is like uh, can be emulated in uh, Peninsular Malaysia. I think, come on, it's it's been like. Since independence until now, we have been talking about the same thing over and over: racial unity, racial unity, racial unity. Let's let's talk past this thing. I mean, like, come on, being a minority within a minority. I'm a Punjabi and I'm a Sikh. I feel no one tolerates each other. Yes, tolerate tolerance is a bad word. We don't tolerate each other at all. We always like to be in our own community. We don't want to mix with each other. Look at our national school system. You know, everything starts with our education system and I think we are we are not moving forward. So just let's just not talk about it. Because I think even in Sabah or Sarawak and Peninsula definitely, there is always gonna be racial issues and it's getting worse day by day. Look into the news. When anything happens, any accident happens, we always ask what race is the person. I this this will never be solved in Malaysia because we we it's it is a historical aspect and we have grown grow up from it uh, I mean we, we grew up with it so yeah Vikram thank you for that um, so I, I think the reason okay just to say the reason why we're talking about it today specifically is because the chief minister of Sabah brought it up so um, it, it's that's why once more this question of Sabah Peninsula and so on I think though that your larger point about let's talk past it, let's move past it, is an interesting one. Because am I right in um, understanding that you're suggesting that we just live with the fact that it's bad, Um, that the situation in our country is bad, the way we relate to each other racially or culturally is not great, and that's just how it is. I... Because I'm not sure that is everybody's experience. I think it's something that the news can make you feel like it's that experience. Um, the social the social media setting is terrible. Um, it, it can certainly make you feel like that is the case. I don't feel that way in my own life. I recognize that um, because I'm racially Chinese, that there's a certain amount of privilege attached to that. I might, you know, that might be just my experience. But I, I don't know that I agree that it is 
that bad. Yeah, and also, you know, Vikram, I, because the, what is the option? I mean, is the option not speaking about it? Um, and I, I don't think that is a true uh, option, politically at least. What we need are new terms, new ways of thinking, right? Ah, uh, yes, yeah. And I think that's why, you know, uh, what Vilashini said at the end of her, you know, our interview with her was, we can talk about, you know, the importance of unity, but we need to do it uh, with the recognition that the people who are doing it, if they're privileged, recognize their privilege, that we center compassion. So if we if you're tired of the old script, and I can imagine a lot of us are tired of the old Actually, script. Actually, I'm tired of the script too. I, I think that, um, Vikram, I, I'm so interested in the fact that you use words that have been used for so long. Tolerance, indicating that it's a bad word. It's true. I, I really don't like the word tolerance. Um, I think this racial unity idea, it, it can get very tiring. Our guest was tired of it too. Yeah, um, I have a very different take on tolerance. I don't know if you have uh, time to get into it, but uh, I, I think the idea is that as a nation, uh, what should we aspire to, right? Do we aspire to the ideals of the perfect state? Sure. Right? There's something, and I think this is the, the expression that the Americans use it, you know, kind of the aspiration to a perfect union. Uh, it's always a more getting perfect. There. Yeah, more perfect union, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Malaysia's a work in progress. And I think the, what people like Vilashini and others who are working activists on the ground do is they constantly remind us that we cannot be uh, complacent with the words we use. We cannot be ill, in, uh, lack, we can't lack uh, discipline in, in the concepts we use and that we need to open our eyes to the realities on the ground. I think that's the major lesson from from coming from her and those like her? I, I think tolerance actually is a word that depends on uh, the context because if what you mean by tolerate is that we just live side by side and we don't bother each other too much and it's all okay, um, that's broadly fine by me. That's a practical version. Um, I hear tolerance with a sigh. That tolerate comes with a... <sighs> fine. Um, and that's the part that I think I'm less comfortable with, the yeah, sigh. Yeah. So what people want, I think, and aspire to is understanding. They hope you go from tolerance to understanding, and with understanding comes a deeper sense of the other, empathy, uh, you know, and care. a willingness, and care, right? And so, but, and so that tolerance will not uh, get us to care. It will only get us to peaceful coexistence, as uh, Velashini kind of invoked earlier. So we're talking today about how Sabah and Sarawak are frequently held up as the, the great bastions of you know unity and diversity in our country. And we're asking you whether that's true, whether there is something to that. We've also been talking about the ways in which um, that kind of perspective can prove limiting or harmful. You can call with your thoughts, double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9. It is 7.08 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. So just to recap, um, basically... Basically, we're talking about this because it's been in the news. Sabah's Chief Minister, Datuk Sri Hajiji No, said that unity and harmony among Sabahans are the keys behind the prosperity and well-being of the state, saying that other states in Malaysia ought to look to Sabah as an example for multiracial and multicultural unity. I hesitated in setting that up because, frankly, I mean, it's in the news because of this, but it's a thought that is floating about in the ether. It gets brought up a lot. It's frequently invoked. And so we wanted to talk about really the good and bad of that. And we're asking you, do you think Sabah and Sarawak do indeed have something unique that we don't here in Malaya? 
when it comes to diversity. You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Lots and lots of points to get through. Let's start with this voice note uh, from Trevor. One thing I can tell you, in East Malaysia, especially Kuching, I would say Sarawak, if you go around the coffee shop, it can be a typical Chinaman coffee shop. But you can find Malay traders there as well. A pork me guy, Chinese pork me guy, side by side with a Malay nasi kanda rice. You know, you can see such things in a Chinese coffee shop. And the beauty is, you can even meet Malay couples and Chinese people sitting, sharing the same table. Sharing the same table, but eating different food, respecting each other's diversity and culture. This is something that you rarely see here in West Malaysia. Or particularly, you don't see this in West Malaysia. That's uh, something very unique, you know? Thank you. Trevor, thank you for that. Um, Lots of other people saying similar things. Chris saying it's a no-brainer that our East Malaysian states exemplify a higher sense of diversity, that spirit of muhiba is more practiced, um, and then goes on to talk about that food court or restaurant example as well. Uh, Arvin says, I was living and studying in Sabah for three years. I noticed till now that acceptance and tolerance. There's one place in KK where there's a mosque, church and temple that exist side by side and they have no issue. V says, I went to Miri last year and I was quite surprised that dog poop dustbins are provided in one of the public parks rather than in the Klang Valley where there's really none of this um, other than uh, you know where. Um, I'm not sure that exemplifies diversity but at least that's what's been observed. Yeah, so it's interesting that many of us reach for the example of food prohibitions as a, as the boundaries. Actually, prohibitions in general, general like because right? dogs, yeah. Yeah, dogs. Uh, I think the other thing that's... But I think, see, I wonder if we're in danger of overstating the case of what we lack here in the peninsula. I mean, is it really, are we just like the opposite of so what happens in Sabah and Sarawak? And I don't think that's true. Like, even when Arvind says, you know, uh, there's a mosque, church and temple existing side by side, you just have to go to Penang to see that, right? In the old cities, the question is what's happened over time. You know, we did have... And people lived in very practical sense, really cheek to jowl. They lived together. Their religious ceremonies were next to each other. Uh, what's changed and has it changed so dramatically? I'm not so sure. So depending on the generation you ask, they have a very different experience of the peninsula, I think. I do think, though, that these are very, very commonly brought up things, partly because um, it speaks to how... You know, I, I really don't know whether... I go back to this. I really don't know whether it actually doesn't happen here or whether when we are in our comfort zones, in other words, our home state, we go to the places we go to. We, we frequent the places that we would normally go to. In other words, a non-halal coffee shop or a warung or whatever it may be. And therefore, we don't see that, that greater mix. Um, perhaps that speaks to the fact that within those spaces as well, the mix isn't happening. But I do think part of this is the... 
I don't like the word novelty because that makes it sound as if um, Sabah and Sarawak are, are novelties in and of themselves. But I'm, I'm speaking of the novelty of travel or of living somewhere different for a while. And then your, your eyes are more open to observing these things. Yeah. So I think going back to our interview that it's not that, um, you know, that these that there is not... I mean, the, the, I think the criticism is not that there is, isn't greater unity in Sabah and Sarawak than there's here, or there are different ways or different, uh, sorry, different ways or different compromises that are made over there than here. But at the, at the same time, um, you know, are we in danger of either overstating their unity or understating and not recognizing our own unity in the peninsula? Because I think mm. there are many people who can point to all kinds of mixes that happen in the peninsula historically and even the con- in contemporary society. That you know, so I don't experience uh, you know uh, the peninsula living in Kale as so divided uh, as some people might think it is. Yeah, I, I don't think either of us seem to actually. Just a few more points about the specifics of Sabah and Sarawak. Dr. Arvind saying, I lived in Sarawak for four years, respect their culture, they accept you with open arms. Such a lovely state. I worked as a doctor in Kuching, Surian and Bao. I loved it. Um, Wendy, meanwhile, says, yes, they're extremely diverse, different ethnic groups and cultures that I'd never heard of. Their clothes, way of life and traditions are not very similar two hours, uh, try reading about the Penan, um, the Keban, etc., um, the Iban, etc. Have you ever taken their food? So many different herbs, vegetables, fruit. Try going to a pasta in Borneo one day. I've tried sea grapes, uh, the varied the paku, and interesting fruit like bambangan, tarap, and many more. So, Wendy, you point to the other possibility that food does, right, which is to bring people together. So we, sometimes we think of food prohibitions as dividing people, but actually there's some kind of cuisines. And if you think of the Mama, uh, you know, uh, institution in the peninsula, it actually has everybody there. Everybody can go to a Mama restaurant, and we, we do frequently. Maybe that's the peninsula compromise. That is the one space where everybody seems equally comfortable and equally interested in the food. Yes. Um, and also, again, this is why I come back to that point about not seeing our own because this whole sitting side by side and ordering food um, and sharing it, it happens in mamaks all the time. Now, admittedly, mamaks are halal spaces and I think that that's maybe why we don't see it in, in the same way as we do in a food court setting in which there aren't... Um, there isn't that similar descriptor that, that's placed on it. Um, let's see. We've also got this from... Okay, this is a slightly more contentious one from Didi. To preface this, I have witnessed online battles between Kuching netizens and Kota Kinabalu netizens comparing stuff between the two cities, which one's better to live in, quality of life, it riles up the Sarawakians and Sabahans alike. It seems to me that even Borneans on the same continent can't even get along. Imagine if one day... The, the Borneo states do leave the Federation of Malaysia, not in our lifetime. Um, I don't think that Sabah and Sarawak could survive on their own with self-determination because they'd have to work together. Right now, with all this internal fighting, East Malaysians looking askew at West Malaysia, blanket labelling, here it is again, the entire peninsula as racists and discrimination uh, discriminative. Well, aren't they doing the same towards their own fellow countrymen across the South China Sea? Always going with the rhetoric, oh, come to Sabah and Sarawak, Malay and Chinese can sit in the same coffee shop, eat together, Muslims and Christians can coexist. I'd like to think that more well-learned and educated West Malaysians do know that Sabahans and Sarawak do not live in trees and caves and they view the Bornean Malaysians as fellow countrymen as well and that there shouldn't be this blanket labelling of all West Malaysians as discriminatory. 
Yeah. So, Didi, you get to the heart of the conversation. Which it's is, several points, actually. Yeah, several points. But the heart of the conversation is uh, the caricatures, whether positive or negative, both don't work. The, the negative caricature for the peninsula and the positive caricature for Sabansrawa. And that in... In understanding this, uh, the nuances of Sabah and Sarawak, we actually uh, see them for what they are. You know, it's like it's like people, right? We and I think this is what Villa talked about in infantilized. We make them seem innocent and simple, and you know that their unity comes out of this kind of almost unthinking simplicity, right? When in fact it might come from hard work to constantly build bridges and to make compromises that will have to be made across cultures and languages and whatever. Um, I will also say that um, with regard to feeling hard done by with the description of being blanketed as racist and discriminatory, to put it simply, it's not great. I, I know that it's not a great feeling. I do think, though, that for a very long time, we weren't great. And so, um, you know, the, the getting called out or, or having it pointed out in a more public setting is a relatively new thing. And so um, if, we, if we're feeling, I think, triggered, it's important to remember that, well, if you're not discriminatory, then you're not being spoken about. And, and so it's fine. Um, the, the blanket labelling is one that we're uncomfortable with, but maybe just one that we have to negotiate. Keep those thoughts coming. Um, do Sabah and Sarawak have something unique that we don't here in the peninsula when it comes to diversity? You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Because freedom matters. BFM 89.9. It's 7.19 and you're listening to Insight Story with Lynn and Sherrod, continuing our conversation and asking you, uh, do Sabah and Sarawak have something unique that we don't have in Malaya? When it comes to diversity specifically, you can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. We've got a thought that came through from Bing. Sabah Sarawak, yeah, the integration of cultures and, uh, and races, definitely, it's it can be seen. It's so obvious and, uh, and it's appreciative. In fact, uh, over the last six years, I've been traveling a lot to that part of the region for business. And uh, I have, for, uh, with my own two eyes and uh, experience going through together uh, with them, I've never seen uh, in Peninsula where we could actually wine and dine in the same table uh, with people from different religious backgrounds and also uh, ethnicity. Right? There seems to be an invincible tolerance uh, or an invincible, uh, there's a form of respect of everyone's uh, differentiation. Now, I've even been to a house whereby in Sabah, you know, whereby the family uh, consists of different ethnicity and religious beliefs. And so happened it was. Uh, Gawai, I mean, it was a Kaamatan festival. Um, well, everyone could sit together, but yeah, there seems to be a respect on everyone's beliefs and culture. And but then things still get moving. Everyone's enjoying themselves. There's a sense of unity and pride uh, amongst themselves, which is why I, 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 they have all the right to say that they are more Malaysia than us West Malaysians. I recall my younger days. 
in the 80s at least uh, there were some resemblance of that there was I would say it couldn't be it could be a singular event but uh, it has since died out in fact it's interesting to see the composition of multi-ethnicities in their GLCs the state GLCs uh, and in the board and management team of, uh, of the state GLCs in these two states compared right it clearly shows that you know that uh, everyone's capacity is appreciated not only that gender as well I've never seen so many women in the management team of uh, and also the Bing, thank you for that. Um, a number of different points coming through. Um, mostly, I think, celebrating the sense of unity or diversity that's available um, in Sabah and Sarawak. Yeah, but uh, again, Bing, you know, I think the things that we, we experience, I guess, uh, vi as visitors, uh, academics will tell you there are... Um, or kinds of dynamics that have to do with race, uh, especially ra racial uh, issues around, uh, you know, the the difference between the Chinese community, the Dayak community, the Malada Malay, Malay community, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's there. It's not that it's it's not, um, it doesn't operate. It's just that we are maybe less attentive to it. Uh, and, and therefore, in wanting to understand deeper what's going on in Sabah and Sarawak, uh, we're going to have to do more than go beyond the kind of platitudes. Benjamin says, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are far fewer race-based political organisations in East Malaysia. Coincidentally or consequentially, there is far greater racial harmony. Um, let's let's look at it, because if you look at uh, some a place like um, Srawa, mm. where they're a little more familiar with, you do have Chinese-based parties like SUPP. And all. I mean, I, I don't actually, I, I'm very reluctant to speak on this because... Um, because I'm not so knowledgeable, right? But there's a DAP, the PKR. They, there is some. Uh, there might be some parties where there's one community is more uh, more represented. But I, th I think at the end of the day, um, it's not like it's not there. It's just that it operates in a different way. But uh, you'd have to speak to a, an expert or a political scientist on that. Okay. We have this from Munif. Um, let's see. Munif says, The generalisation came from a politician, so you immediately know it's untrue. No landmass intrinsically births tolerant, jovial people. You can find racial unity across all states. You can also find discrimination in the same way. Just because your demographic tabulation results in less explosive racial and religious bickering does not make one state the paragon of diversity, especially when discrimination is totally displayed in other, cat in other categories, as stated by your guest herself. There is one intrinsic quality to our Bornean side of the family that I do acknowledge, though. Y'all are generally hot for some reason. Guys and girls, now that's a head-scratcher. <laughs> I wonder if that's really sweet. And I, I think there's something to you be said. You say this like you are from Sabah and Sarawak. No, that's very sweet. No, I'm not like <laughs> accepting the compliment. I'm just saying I understand the compliment. And uh, But yes, uh, you're absolutely right. These kind of generalizations, which is actually the basis for our conversation. And it's what, you know, Villa Sumaya was actually also alerting us to. It's unhelpful to use these generalizations. How do we go beyond it? Because sometimes I think what we think of 
we in the peninsula might think of Sabah and Sarawak has nothing to do with Sabah and Sarawak. has everything to do with what we think of ourselves. Uh, actually, I would um, be more specific and say that it has to do with our own very uh, specific insecurities um, and how for a very long time we were the centre of everything, you know, um, KL is supposedly the capital of Malaysia because we're in the centre. You know, there, there are all these things that surround particularly Klang Valley notions of self-importance. And I think having that questioned or, you know, having to think about it a little bit more makes us more likely to either romanticise um, the other side of things or maybe overly critical of other side, the other side of things. It can go in any which direction. I think romanticization is the perfect word to describe what happens often uh, when we think about the Saban Sarawak yeah, from it, here. It's partly because the states are also beautiful in many ways to be in. So you go there and then it's like lovely and then people are nice and then before you know it, you're like... This is great. I shall romanticize these people. <laughs> but there's also the other process of self-exoticization or, or more, more kind of a, something that's akin to that when you start talking about yourself as being so different. I, and I think, uh, though I don't know, whether people in Sabah and Sarawak feel the need increasingly as they strive to get a better deal from the Federation, uh, when they're trying to assert themselves, you know, the Sarawakians for uh, for Sarawak for Sarawakians and those kinds of slogans, they need to say what I why we are different and why we are special mm. and why we deserve to get support for our difference, right, for our autonomy. Well, um, Anon says perhaps the feeling of racial discrimination is felt more prominently in Semenanjung, where politics uses politics use racial profiling to advocate their interests compared to Sarawak and Sabah, where the interest is more direct to gaining more independence generally for the whole state. I think that that's actually quite an interesting point. Yeah. So, Anand, yes, there's a question, I think, of how politicians and politics deploy race. But I would ask you, in Malaysia, do you feel on a ground level, just among people, whether that is is similar? I mean, the kind of things you might hear from uh, ethno-nationalists, right? It's not, the, it's not the language you hear on the ground. No. And I th- and I, uh, so I think, to be fair, Malayans as opposed to Malayan politicians, are very different creatures. Yes, uh, I would agree with that. Sarah says... Uh, as a Sarawakian ethnically, my parents are from Kuching, but I was born and lived in KL, so I consider myself as being from here. I watched my parents not want to be open in telling people that we're from Kuching and Sarawak. They didn't speak to me in Malay because they didn't want me to pick up the Sarawakian Malay accent or words, and this was because they have had so many people in West Malaysia be racist to them and tell them to go back to where you came from when they moved here for university and work. I guess it's their trauma. They still feel reluctant today to tell people that they're Sarawakian. So Sarah, that, that's very interesting as a story. And I, I wonder though, you know, whether enough has been done to document. So this is where people in the peninsula have to own up to the root cause of why people in Sabah and Sarawak might actually have very antagonistic feelings towards the peninsula, right? Or even towards the Federation as a whole. If there was bad behavior, if there was discrimination or whatever it is, we need to own up to it. How do we get beyond that? Well, first we have to acknowledge it, right? Yes, first we have to say that it did happen. Um, Okay, I think just to close off, we have this from Liana who says, I can relate to the feeling of fatigue uh, about discussing unity, but at the same time, I recognize my privilege as a Malay. And I've expressed this publicly, especially in front of my non-Muslim friends. I wish we could become a colorblind nation. To me, that's what racial unity is. But of course, it's not as easy as it sounds, especially from a policy point of view. Liana, I think there's nothing more to say to what, you know, yeah. I mean, how, what would I add to that? Except to say, well, maybe your feelings, hopefully more generalized, might help shift the country. 
And that's all the time we have for today. You have been listening to Inside Story, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.